good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. And we're here every week, hail, rain or shine or disasters. And there have been a few disasters, haven't there? But um, we have our press release, 869 this week. And uh, we have Oliver here to help us. And uh, we have a pretty full, a pretty full program. Uh, we'll talk about the private schools adjusting their post-pandemic business plans. But we'll also go back to last week where we um, gave you some inkling of the uh, talk that was given at the Melbourne University History Fellows group um, by myself uh, as a tribute to my beloved son, Robert. Um, and we have some questions and answers that were um, put at this talk. We'll remind you about what it was about. But there was one question that became very garbled because of the, um, the way it was recorded. So we will, we will repeat that question and we will give you uh, a, an even further answer. So for the moment, let's get on with press release 869, which we will put up on our website at www.adogs.info. This is it. Private schools adjusting their post-pandemic business plans. Given the uncertainties imposed by the pandemic on middle-class families whose parents or grandparents were paying extortionate private school fees, well above the resource standard of approximately 14000 per student, and that's a secondary student, that's Gonski figures, uh, and these, these schools are charging, as we'll see shortly, anything from 30000 to 40000 odd, um, many private schools are faced with a transfer of enrolments into the public sector because the aspirational middle-class parents are finding it a little bit hard to find this out of their job seeker and job keeper uh, money. Uh, parents are finally doing their educational and financial homework. Perhaps all the wonderful resources, uh, wellness places, uh, libraries and what have you at these private schools, uh, playing fields, you name it, they're better resourced than the universities indeed. Uh, they perhaps are not worth 30000 a year. For example, we find from Adam Carey of the age of the 2nd of December that Shelford Grammar School, an Anglican school charging 27000 a year for Australian and $30,000 for international students, is shedding 30 of its 86 staff and closing its early learning centre. Well, our advice would be for those 30 to go and see if they can get a job for the education department because their employment will be much more secure. But um, here we have... Oliver, who will tell you a little bit more about what's going on with the business plans of the wealthy private schools. Thank you, Jean. For example, we find from Adam Carey at the age of 2nd of December that Shelford Grammar School, an Anglican school charging $27,000 a year for Australian and $37,000 a year for international students, is shedding 30 of its 86 staff and closing its early learning centre. The headmistress, MC Brennan said, 30 staff had been made redundant, including 17 at the Early Learning Centre, while a further 10 had resigned for a range of personal reasons. And we are told by Anna Pritz in the age of November 27th, 2020, that Victorian private schools are freezing fees next year 
to help families recover from the financial impact of the coronavirus crisis. In her article, uh, we discover what kind of fees parents would have to pay, even with the free, free, freeze. For it might be remembered that back in the day, 1998 to be precise, the then Federal Minister for Education, Mr. Kemp, said that we had to up the state aid bill to taxpayers in order to make these schools more affordable and keep the fees down. We discover, for instance, that, number one, Kerry Baptist Grammar School Principal Jonathan Walter said that this co-educational school, which charges just over $33,000 annually for years 11 and 12, knew it was important not to increase fees in 2021. And two, Hawthorne's Scotch College, the second most expensive place in the state to educate a year 12 student with fees of almost $40,000, announced in May that it would not increase fees for the next year. They claim that parents are incredibly grateful having that surety around their expenses for next year, knowing that there's not an increase in the costs there. He said it had taken careful budgeting to achieve the fee freeze. Note the mind boggles about the kind of budgeting Scotch would need unless they were in the expansion business. Three, De La Salle College Principal Peter Huilhan said parents who had needed fee relief during the pandemic were pleased with the boys' school's decision to stabilise tuition costs. Four, Haley Berry, which charges $33,560 a year, for students in years 9 to 12, is also foregoing an annual fee increase. Five, Xavier College in Kew will increase its fees, but by a reduced rate of 1.5%. The school gave every family a 10% rebate during the year as well, as an extra rebate for those most affected. And six, Edmund Rice Education Australia, i.e. Christian Brothers before the Childhood Abuse Commission, said 11 of its 33 Catholic schools nationally that charge fees would have no increase. This includes St. Kevin's College in Turak. Uh, the remaining schools opted for reduced increases. The Chief Executive of the Association of Heads of Independent Schools of Australia, Beth Blackwood, said schools across the country were being prudent. Schools are being very cautious, even with strong enrolment, she said. There are programs such as JobKeeper still keeping people financially afloat that may not be there next year. Schools have the interests of students at heart, and in such turbulent times, having to change schools is not what they would want for their students. This is all very charitable for these schools. They are, after all, in a market for a commodity. Forget education or a religious education. They are dealing in a commodity required for tertiary entrance and a good job. And there is some evidence that the strong enrollments are no longer there. The Catholic sector, in particular, is rationalising the way that public schools were forced to do by the Kennett government in the 1990s. But there has been an upsurge in enrolment and demand for new schools in the public sector in the first two decades of the 21st century. There have been two instances of girls' schools amalgamating with boys' schools and going co-ed. The Catholic Girls' School, St. Aloysius College, North Melbourne, with four enrolments, will begin to enrol boys from 2023, becoming co-educational after more than 130 years of educating girls in North Melbourne. It follows the recently announced merger of Catholic Boys School, Christian Brothers College, St Kilda, with Catholic Girls School, Presentation College, Windsor. The merged school has been named St Mary's College and will teach boys and girls from next year. Meanwhile, Presentation College, Windsor, abruptly announced its closure last year, 
blaming unsustainably low enrolments. But there has been an upsurge in enrolments and demand for new schools in the public sector in the first two decades of the 21st century. Perhaps parents are starting to wake up to the spin doctoring of private schools selling a commodity which is not worth the price tag. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, there you are. Um, we live in very interesting times, particularly for public education. And I, I think it's very important that we assert that it should be free, secular and um, universal because there's a lot of pressure on the public sector to get money in from international students. Uh, they don't have to pay much less, of course, if they go to a public school than they don't go to a private school. But um, there's also um, the idea that the alumni of the public sector should now uh, give money because the public schools are very much down on parental contributions through uh, all of their fundraising in the last year. So all around Australia, private funding for education is at an all-time low because of the pandemics, because uh, people are without a job. But please note that the private schools got JobKeeper and the private universities got job JobKeeper, but the public sector did not. Um, so uh, I think that should be noted. Uh, it's very, very unfair. But we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll hear from Dale some more about um, the uh, 2nd of December Shelford College matter. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Welcome back to the Dogs Program on this Saturday, lovely Saturday uh, in, in early, early summer. But it's not too terrible yet, our summer. And here we are at 3CR. We're keeping going always because the cause is so important. And Adela is going to give us a bit more information uh, on this article in The Age of December the 2nd by Adam Carey about the leading private girls' school, which is, quote, in damage control after a staff exodus. As we've just noted in our press release, They've just got rid of 30 out of 86. Oh, sorry, I think, yes, it's 86 staff. Uh, that's more than a third, I think. Pretty, pretty, pretty drastic downsizing. Almost as bad as Qantas. <laughs> or if they'll be outsourcing. 
Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, I've got Adam Carey's article here, Leading Private Girls School in Damage Control Over Staff Exodus. Dozens of teachers at one of Melbourne's leading private girls' school have been made redundant or have resigned in a bruising staff clean-out that has unsettled parents. Shelford Girls Grammar, a 122-year-old Anglican school in Caulfield, will also shut its early learning centre and kindergarten at year's end, cutting off a crucial channel of future students for the high-fee school. Year 12 students at Shelford Girls Grammar celebrate the end of the 2019 school year before the school began a different restructure. The school board is in damage control control mode, appointing an expert consultant to work with its first-year principal, Katrina Brennan, who has spearheaded the difficult restructure. Ms Brennan said... 30 staff have been made redundant, including 17 at the Early Learning Centre, while a further 10 had resigned for a range of personal reasons. The school had a full-time equivalent staff of just 86 last year, its 2019 annual report shows. Ms Brennan defended the changes she had driven at the school, saying, they were not unusual under a new leadership team with a forward focus and were required to align staff with student preferences, whatever that means. While this is never a happy time, we have had, a, had great support from our parents and continuing staff to welcome 2021 as a year of change with extended opportunities for our students and staff alike, she said. Teachers who spoke to the age said morale at the school was at rock bottom and that a previously supportive workplace environment had become toxic. It's not a happy place compared to what it was like 12 months ago, one teacher said. So many long-serving staff members have gone and it's just been demoralising. The school has told affected staff that the changes were being made in response to its deteriorating financial position. Changes required due to a loss of financial income for the school and the need to streamline the delivery of whole school sport, health and PE programs and curriculum across the school, Shelford Girls Grammar said in an internal correspondence seen by the age. But it has also given parents who have raised concerns about staff cuts a different message, telling them the school is in a very sound financial position. Zena Hellman, the chair of Shelford's board, defended the restructure in a letter to parents while conceding it has caused distress in the school community. As with other independent schools in Melbourne, this planning needed to be done in the new context of COVID and the impact it is having on us, our student families and international students now and into the future, Ms Hellman wrote on November 19th. The impact has been significant and the board recognises that many members of staff who went through the redundancy process felt upset by it and that there are concerns amongst some parents, she wrote. The school Gee, what a lot of beautiful words that they use. <laughs> I know. She wanted to say to staff just lost a job, really. Concerned, <laughs> concerned. <laughs> Uh, the school has appointed Helen Good, an expert in educational leadership and mentoring, 
as a consultant to Ms Brennan and her leadership team, Ms Helmer told parents. With the help of Dr Good, we are looking forward to putting the difficulties of 2020 behind us and heading into 2021 with an exciting vision for the school operating under the Shelford values of respect, nurture, community, care and inclusivity, she wrote. Well, not for, not for 30 teachers, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> inclusivity. <laughs> the sp- these are, these are words. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, very, it's actually terribly, terribly sad. It um, is. And, and there'll be a lot of this going on around Australia. Uh, and this, I think, indicates how, how fragile putting education of children in the hands of private uh, religious enterprises is. Yeah, it could be on top today and down tomorrow. But, of course, what these people will do is just demand more and more and more of our taxpayers' money. Yeah. Very That's the problem with the, the free marketeers. You can't make education a commodity because it is a societal good that has, that has repercussions long beyond, you know, any, any perception of household debt. Anyway, I'll continue yeah, with the article. Well, we're talking later, of course, about how in about the 1980s society didn't exist anymore. But the pandemic has proved that actually it does. Yeah. And our society and people in it haven't just the ordinary people done a wonderful job being kind to each other. Anyway, battle on, battle on, off you go. (laughs) Okay. The small prep to 12 school, which had 515 enrolments last year, charges tuition fees of more than $27,000 a year for senior students and more than $37,000 for international students. Parents said Shelford was an attractive school to send their daughters to because it has so has a supportive community and excellent teachers, despite lacking the top-shelf facilities of some high-fee competitors. But they also expressed fears that the school's strong culture has been shattered in the restructure. The community is gone, one parent said. Ms Helmut acknowledged some parents were concerned, but said she had also received many letters of support from parents regarding the restructure. Change is hard but change is necessary for a progressive school, she said. And uh, that's how the article ends. But it doesn't sound very progressive when, you know, we're harking back to sort of Thatcherite ideals, neoliberalism. Well, I, I like that little that little um, aside that there's $10,000 difference between Australian students and international students. So they obviously have an eye to um, exploitation of the international market. Whereas back in the 1960s and 70s, we had these children and young people here, particularly in our universities, on the Colombo Plan scheme uh, as a diplomatic um, matter. Perhaps we should be being more diplomatic to our Chinese international students at the moment. But um, that's just my two pence worth. Let's have a bit of a break and then we'll come back um, to the... Uh, talk that was given at Melbourne University as a tribute to Robert Ely last week. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. 
local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Yes, back to the talk that was uh, you heard, you would have heard part of it um, last week. That was given at Melbourne University as a tribute to Robert Ely. Um, in the paper, I tried to explore a central question. I was looking at what had happened to the idea of equality of educational opportunity. It actually only surfaced this idea in Australian education in 1970s. And it was, it was a, a strange idea, uh, really, because it was uh, meant as a way of justifying the giving of state aid to the private sector, which had discriminated against uh, disadvantaged children for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, so I asked the question, why is the idea of equality in Australian education, as articulated by Carmel in 1973, and re-articulated by Gonski in 2011, why has it persisted despite the obvious cleavage with reality? Because particularly since 1980, things have been getting more and more unequal. And I tried to put it against what has been happening around the world, in the Western democracies in particular and the OECD countries. And you will find, as we've told you on this program, that the OECD uh, considers that we are 19th out of the 37th countries in, in levels of inequality. The United States, by the way, is 7th, and the United Kingdom is 9th. But the levels of inequality went down after the Second World War for 30 glorious years, 1950 to 1980. But since 1980, they have been going up not just in Australian education, but all around the world and in Australian society generally. And you might remember, of course, that in the 1980s, the economic paradigm changed from post-war reconstruction and a mixed economy between public and private uh, into a market neoliberal economy. And um, I, I suggested two reasons for the persistence of the ideal. One was that it's perennial and it's surfaced many times in history, going back to the ancient Greeks. Aristotle, for example, uh, warned that if you had too, too high a level of inequality, you were going to have revolution. And um, uh, you will find that even St Paul, uh, the apostle, was prepared to say that there is no distinction between male or female, poor or rich. Uh, particularly amongst the Christian um, population of the early church. 
Now, the inequalities in educational provision also are a reflection on the inequalities in the society itself. And I've been saying for many, many years, what's happened to the political economists? We've had economists who look into all these mathematical tables and think that they can foretell the future. But there, there used to be people like Marx, Durkheim and many others, uh, Hodgkin back in the 19th century, who called themselves political economists. And they disappeared from the academic world around about 1900. But since 2000, there has been an upsurge in an alternative academic world um, all around the world of very high-powered uh, political economists. Uh, I mentioned 10 of these. One was Piketty, Thomas Piketty from Paris, but another one was Joseph Stiglitz and another one was Scheidel and there are many others. Here in Australia, Andrew Lee, who I think is um, a uh, shadow treasurer for finance uh, in the Labor Party, was also an economics um, professor at the ANU and has written a, a very important book called Battlers and Billionaires about Australian uh, in levels of inequality. I believe there's a more recent book just come out too. Uh, I think it's called Unconnected. But I, I, I turn to Thomas Piketty and his explanations and he had four main reasons uh, for the levels of inequality. One was the rise of educational inequality the other one was the um, abandonment of, of progressive taxation. Uh, another one was the rise of the Brahmin left. Uh, the leftist um, parties have been very largely voted for by people with college degrees all around the Western world, and they have left behind what used to be called the working class voter, which are now our itinerant class. And we have seen what happened in America with the itinerant class who felt that the established parties were leaving them behind, particularly in matters of education and health. Hence, you have had the rise of Trumpism and, um, in America and the Hansons and others here in Australia. It's a very unstable situation when you have levels of inequality like we have at the moment in America the United Kingdom and Australia. By the way, the most unequal country is uh, South Africa. But in, in, in conclusion, uh, I also wanted to talk about the rise of the meritocracy. And um, this is a very troubled area. Not everybody would agree with Piketty on this. And he himself is somewhat ambiguous. There's a question as to whether or not there is perhaps a good meritocracy and a bad meritocracy. But I, I leave that for you as our listeners to decide. The problem is that the meritocracy is used by people like uh, Johnson in the United Kingdom and even Morrison here to say, oh, if people are at the top, then they must have merit. They must be cleverer than the rest of us. And Johnson himself talked about uh, a cornflake uh, cornflakes, would you believe, that the clever little cornflakes rise to the top. So um, you will now go to some of the questions that were asked. But there was one question which was an important question which uh, was not um, didn't, didn't take too well to the um, 
to the radio. So we will repeat that one and talk about that. But over to you, Dale. You're the expert in this area and we're very, very, very grateful to you for um, getting this uh, for us. No problem at all, Jean. Uh, yeah, we'll go now to a little package of the question and answer session that came after Jean's very meaty talk at uh, Melbourne Uni last week. Over to the questions. Thank you very much, Jean, for a fascinating discussion of uh, these issues with their inherent conflicts and contests. Uh, I was puzzled, though, by uh, the comment, I think it's Piketty, about progressive taxation, because to me, you know, progressive taxation is one of the elements of equality in an egalitarian, well, in a, a would-be egalitarian society, and of course that anything that isn't progressive taxation becomes regressive, as I understand it. So I don't quite see how progressive taxation contributes to the problem of inequality in education, unless it's to say that the people who pay least tax need uh, public education most, but then if they paid more tax, they presumably wouldn't be uh, in the same situation. Uh, that's that's unprogressive. So uh, just your thoughts about that, please, Jean. Well, I, I'm not sure that I communicated exactly uh, progressive taxation has been um, lost in the last 30 years. For example, we lost inheritance tax. Our probate duty went in 1979, as I recall. Uh, we have also been putting down the top income tax weight uh, very considerably since um, 1945. It's now much lower than it was in, in 1980. And the wealthy have, in fact, done extremely well. According to um, Andrew Lay, they are at least one-third better off than they were in 1980. The company tax is now um, down from 46% to 27.5% and probably going down lower. So uh, without, without taxation, without money, the state cannot uh, enter into any kind of redistributive um, program. I think there was a misunderstanding because I was asked to, to, to go more quickly at that point. Yes, well, well, I suppose it's not so much progressive taxation as such as rather the extent to which we depart from its principles in yes. recent times. That's Thanks very much. Thank you. I was fascinated, Jean, by your whole talk because it confirmed for me those tendencies that have continued over this period. But my question is in relation to, say, Labor governments, they have embraced this, yes, as you stated, this neo-rational, neo-liberal ideology. And, and I'm just querying, um, so the state governments, which are primarily responsible for the funding of government schools, have obviously accepted this ideology and done nothing to um, try to rebalance that, that funding over these past 30 years. Oh, yes, that, that is correct. Uh, and a part of the problem more recently is that the state governments, because the Commonwealth government was putting more money in, withdrew funding. And the state governments have got problems. Uh, there's a fiscal imbalance in the Federation because they gave income tax uh, in, the, in the war years uh, to, the, to the federal government, and all they got back was payroll tax. 
the taxation system is essential in all of this, uh, and uh, Piketty is very strong on recommendations that we should go back to a progressive tax system. You remember, of course, that we only agreed in many ways to GST because we were told that without it we wouldn't have schools and hospitals. But I, I'm not quite sure that that has really happened. And the GST is is a regressive tax, and it's not terribly well invested either. And the plain fact of the matter is that the the wealthy are wealthy because they know how to play the tax system. All around the world, with globalisation, we now have tax havens. And what I haven't talked about is the indirect funding of private education, which is uh, an iceberg uh, with all of the taxation exemptions that they have. For example, payroll tax, which state schools have got to pay. So I'm I'm very happy to talk uh, for hours and hours about the tax system. And in my historical studies in Tasmania, for example, I came to the conclusion that in the 19th century, Tasmania fell so far behind by 1906, that they had to bring somebody from South Australia to fix up the nests. Then the problem was that the wealthy in the Midlands did not want to pay tax for somebody else's children. And this is always the problem. The wealthy do not want to pay tax for the education of others' children. They want their own children to continue to be privileged. Uh, But on a national level, This is very a dangerous policy to follow because uh, not only does it lead to political unrest, it also is not good for productivity or the economy in the long term. And Australia should be looking at other countries who have solved these problems a little bit better than we have, for example, Finland. Thank you very much, Jean. I, I agree with a lot of what you say, with the whole general thrust of it. Uh, I just want to wait, raise one uh, difficulty that I have in this, I, I suppose, and that is to do with the, <clears throat> the negative view that you put on uh, meritocracy. Now, I don't want to try and defend uh, uh, the, the meritocracy that uh, Michael Young attacked, but at the same time, you can get to another end of that argument where it doesn't really matter where uh, truth lies unless... And, provided that you can have equality. Take the case of uh, the COVID-19 virus, for example. Uh, We're all waiting uh, in some degree for a a vaccine which can help us to solve this problem. Uh, But if you apply the lens of equality, uh, then maybe we ought to take some money away from Oxford. And you see where I'm driving at in all of this. Ultimately, what works is merit-worthy. And there is something to be said for merit. Uh, there may be a lot to be said for the uses, against the uses that are made of merit. But surely in this area, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That uh, there is something in there, in uh, our human knowledge and understanding, uh, that needs to be defended and needs to be fostered in some way. That's my, that's my question, I suppose. Yes, I, I think this is a very valid um, point to make, Charles. I think even Piketty and um, certainly others like Hayes, who has written on the meritocracy and what the elites, the failure of the elites, um, are very ambiguous about uh, people who in fact, or children who in fact, or uh, students who in fact 
are able to offer a great deal to the community because they have special skills. I, I do understand this point. Um, the problem is that there's a bit of hypocrisy sometimes in the meritocracy. That is what he's saying, that the people who are on top and who have done well and who have made more money because they have had more privilege uh, then argue that those who have not had those privileges are not as talented. The real, the real problem is that we miss out on a lot of very clever cornflakes if we select them either too young or if we don't leave the opportunities open as long, as long, as long as is possible, even for the full life. It gets back to your objectives uh, with education. What is education for? Jean, thank you for a very comprehensive and provocative and informative presentation. Um, I'm a little over halfway through Piketty, so um, it's an amazing book, Capital and Ideology. I highly recommend it. My feeling is that uh, what's happening in Australia, and it seems to me that a lot of the discussion that goes on, even the funding that's really good with the Andrews government now, a huge amount to public schools, it misses one key thing, and that's the Finnish model. You have to pay teachers more. You have to have excellence in teachers where they have to get an advanced degree after they get their bachelor's degree, and they have to be specialists, and they have to be the most valued people in the society. And Finland has done that. And the, the fact is, you know, the Gillard education revolution, it was just about building. And uh, I was living in Adelaide, and I saw what it was, and uh, I have nothing positive to say about it. And all this idea that we can somehow build more, more buildings, but not pay teachers properly, not demand the highest level of excellence from them, and here I agree with uh, Charles on this, that's a problem. You know, it's very simple. It's very simple. You, you know, you want good education in Australia? Make the public sector the highest paid teachers in the whole country. And all of those middle class, the Brahmins and all those people, they'll all flock to public education because we'll make it the best. Oh, I, 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 I really do. I'm so happy that somebody is saying such a thing because it, it is the noblest of all professions. You know, I've, I've had a number of, uh, number of professions, as you know, but um, I think that teachers are so much nicer than lawyers and um, teachers are very, very special people. Um, well, you got to pay them. You've got to pay them. They're not paid properly. He's a very special teacher, and he did his PhD on learning procedures for uh, children with, quote, challenging behaviours. And every child, for a teacher, every child is special. And as a teacher, I found I used to fall in love with my students, actually. But, um, uh, yes, teachers are very, very special, special people, and they should be paid likewise. Unfortunately, and I haven't talked about this, there was, there was a, a second Campbell report and there was a second Gonski report, and our politicians have become more interested in outputs, and they want to blame our teachers when things go wrong. And our teachers have really had to put up with so much in this last 30, 40 years, and our university teachers are now finding uh, the same kind of problems. But um, that doesn't mean to say that, that 
we don't actually fight for all of this. I've been fighting since 1969, and I, I, it's, it's a very worthwhile cause because it is actually the future of our country. Every child is actually gifted in some way or other, and I think that uh, teachers who fight for this, particularly those in the teacher unions, are much to be congratulated. Principals also, particularly in the state school, are much to be congratulated for the tremendous fight that they're putting up at this time. Yeah, I'd just like to say a couple of things. Firstly, I think thank you, Jean, for your wonderful talk. I think you've highlighted something which is maybe a Western democracy sickness, which is the um, the use of spin as a substitute for substance. So the use of the idea of meritocracy without meritocracy, without attachment to the detail of how those statistics are derived. And also highlighting, and, and, and the fact that the Gillard government was probably the only exception in the Labor who had actually tried to do something to address substantively inequality that you highlight. But also, um, broadly, uh, you've highlighted the huge waste of human resources that's been caused by this move to tabloid spin-oriented policymaking. So rather than having decisions made on substance and merit, uh, substance and um, uh, statistical realities, they're based on what's popular. I just want to thank you very much for highlighting at least some of those, bringing together some of those ideas for us, just so we can see the huge waste in human resources caused by this move. Oh, yes, there's tremendous waste, you do, with public money. Um, a lot of the public money is just, for, for the really wealthy schools, is just icing on the top. And they are engaging in a market economy with education, because education is now a commodity, uh, in, in the most expensive and unreal um, resources in the schools. Uh, I showed you Scotch College to begin with, but it's not the only one. We are now coming out of a pandemic and we're coming into a recession. And what is going to happen is going to be very interesting indeed. Because uh, for a parent to put all of their resources into some of the um, the expenses of a private education for their, ch- their child uh, is is a pretty big ask at the moment for a lot of parents. It's it's interesting that the private schools are not upping their fees. They're saying that there's been a fee freeze for the first time for many, many years. Although in the 1990s we were told that we should give them much more money so that the fees could come down. So it is a very selective process and that selective process has mean, meant that they have got rid of or made it impossible for children in the lowest uh, quartile, 25% of socioeconomic uh, status, uh, to get anywhere near these places. But that's a lot of children. And so, it is public school teachers who are teaching those children and who are fighting for those children. And there we were just listening to part of the question and answer session that occurred after Jean's talk at Melbourne Uni last week. We'll have a quick break and then we'll be back Teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. 
Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. And welcome back. You're listening to the Dogs Program on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Just before the break, we listened to part of the question and answer session that occurred after Jean's talk at Melbourne Uni last week. But uh, there was one question that um, the internet didn't want me to record correctly. A gentleman asked Jean, uh, what are your thoughts on the fascinating statistic that 40% of students that attend Catholic schools are not indeed of Catholic faith. Well, I think it's a very, very interesting statistic. And it goes together, and I was alerted to have a look at the 2019 uh, Catholic Commission report and work out how many non-Catholic, non-Catholic students were in their schools because this, this evidence is all there. Uh, they list them. Uh, when I, I read somewhere that back in 2013 report, they said that between the years 2006 and 2012, when inequality really went up in this country, um, there were, in new enrolments in the Catholic sector, were 97% non-Catholic. So, since I had been arguing that since uh, the 1960s, a lot of middle-class parents who thought that their children were what Mr Johnson in the UK called clever little cornflakes, if they couldn't get them into the selective high schools of New South Wales and Victoria and around around the country, then they would take them to a a private school where they could be assured that they would not rub shoulders with disadvantaged children who might uh, hamper their chances of getting to university. Uh, In other words, uh, some middle-class parents thought if the money was there, they could buy their children privileges. And that's really what it's been about for a long time in this country. It hasn't been about uh, fervent religious belief for large numbers of parents, although such people, I think, are genuine and still exist. But it has been about getting privileges for their clever little cornflakes and the devil take the rest. Uh, and I think this is very sad because we've proved in a pandemic that we are a society and we can look after the vulnerable and we do look after the vulnerable and we do want to look after the vulnerable, particularly the old and the young. But um, that that was my theory and I think that it is brought out. The evidence was there in 1979 in the High Court case that the dogs ran, where for 26 days in the High Court, the uh, Catholic and other schools tried to prove that their schools were no more religious than state schools, which, after all, do have religious instruction. 
in in their curriculum. Uh, so uh, this this religious um, argument for state aid is really a very fragile one. Um, and if it isn't uh, that these schools are run for religious purposes, and we're now finding that because of the abuse commission, the Catholic sector have taken the powers of the parish priests out of the local schools, then what are they there for? Why We're paying for them. Why can't the general public use them? Why can't they become free, secular and um, compulsory and universal like our public system? That um, is my view of these, um, this situation. Uh, but that's um, how I would perhaps explain this extraordinary fact, which I found just by chance. Uh, it's surprising what you can find these days because of the computers and because of the data that um, is readily available on the webs, if, websites if you only know where to look. And I'm very much indebted for the work I've been doing this year to Trevor Cobald from Save Our Schools, who has been doing such absolutely sterling work in finding out what is really happening with the funding uh, around Australia from the My School website. Because the one thing that um, Julia Gillard did for education wasn't the Gonski report because no school lost a dollar and they've certainly been getting the shekels in as quickly as they can since uh, 2011. But what she did do was get the data and put it up for everybody to see on a website called My School website. Uh, the sad thing is, of course, that she did this so that parents could evaluate their school and compare schools. But the uh, data there has proved invaluable because she told the private sector that unless they put up uh, their facts and figures of uh, how much they were getting, not only from the government, but also in fees, then we can't ever be certain about the private funding of private schools. But there are some figures there. Um, she she got them to put those up. She could not persuade them to put up their their overall endowments, their um, their assets that they can get funding from too. So uh, that was one thing where she failed. But she did stand up to them and say, "I'm the boss. I pay your bills. You give me the data, or else you won't get the money." Uh, it was a very rare time in Australia Australian educational history that that has happened. So that's my two pennies worth um, of the very interesting fact that in 2019, 40% of the enrolments in the Catholic schools of this country were not practising Catholics. Okay, we might have a quick break and then we'll be right back. You'll listen to the dogs on 3CR.
You have been listening to Henry Purcell's Dido's Lament uh, from the opera Dido and Aeneas. Uh, that was the request of Robert that we played for him. You've been listening to the Dogs Program and we'll be back again next week because the cause is too important. If you want to find out more about us, then go to our website at www.adogs.info. Bye for now. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.